All right. Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat Podcast today with Tim Fitzpatrick. Hi, Tim. How's it going? Hey, John. Doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm very good and uh, also very glad that we are finally, uh, you know, speaking because it, it took a while, right? Uh, we had some we had some things coming in our way. <laughs> we did. Yeah. A couple months at least between uh, COVID tests and moving around here and there. and Who knows what else, but uh, we made it. Absolutely. So, you know, you are um, the CEO of Kona Health. And uh, before we dive into all these uh, interesting things that we can talk about, we already already spoke a little bit uh, pre pre uh, recording. And um, we, we obviously need to start with the most important question. Uh, that is, you know, who is Tim? And in that sense, you know, we obviously would like to understand who is it that we're talking to. Um, so kind of as a, you know, as an icebreaker here, sure. um, give us, give us kind of like a, you know, a background on where you're coming from and, uh, what is it, what is it that you're doing? Absolutely, John. And thanks again for, for having me. So people can get a sense of what we're doing at Icona. We're five years old, but prior to, prior to Icona, I was, uh, working in finance here in New York. So I was a tech trader, equities trader for a bank on the sell side. And I covered tech media and telecom as my sectors. So I was getting acquainted with building algorithms and understanding virtual and augmented reality and building models to predict how things would behave and just starting to see where investments were happening in the public sector, uh, kind of the emerging fringe tech and, and what these companies were thinking about five, 10 years in the future. But while that was happening, that actually was um, an unexpected path. I had spent seven years in the Navy prior to finance. And so I, my entire life was, you know, my upbringing, my childhood, my education, my training was all around a career in, in the military and in the Navy. So I, uh, I had taken a couple of different paths within the Navy and different training pipelines and ultimately, I was in flight school. I had gone through uh, quite a bit of the syllabus and needed a back surgery that resulted in three surgeries over an 18-month, two-year period of recovery and, and a ton of isolation and pain and uh, just a, a horrific patient experience. So by the time I got out of the Navy, I said, you know, I'll, I want something fast-paced. I, I need that adrenaline. But I ended up in New York, right? I took a job. I said, this, this will be cool. This is different. I have no background in finance. That's how I ended up here in New York at the bank. And then by the time I, I met my co-founders who were two surgeons who had just done a randomized controlled trial around VR in the surgical realm and patient education, the ideas for Icona started kind of taking hold. And in, in, in late 2016, early 2017, we took a look at VR, took a look at uh, where things were with hospitals and patient education and, and decided to launch Icona to try to figure out how to, how to build new tools to help patients understand their care. All right. Yeah, interesting. Um, that, that's definitely an interesting route to take. Um, <laughs> I, I like how you said like, yeah, so I ended up in New York, uh, not you know, joining a bank uh, without a background in finance, you know, uh, so tell me what, you know, why join, why join the dark side? Why, why go to finance? You know, <laughs> hey, I, I hear you. Uh, I will tell you it was, it was one thing, uh, and one thing only. And that was, uh, one of my best friends from, from undergrad in Boston. Uh, she had been working at the bank and, and I came up here, was spending some time with her and her fiance, who were two of my closest friends. And, um, and I was, 
for anyone who has ever transitioned out of the military, you know, it's a very uh, scary, uh, terrifying unknown, right? You're transitioning to a civilian and it's overwhelming and you have no idea how to function and you feel like a robot compared to the rest of society. So uh, when I was spending some time with them, I, I had the chance to meet her team. And it just so happened that the team was looking for their first junior trader. And, uh, and when I say that the, the team was so close knit and they were, they surprised me, right? Because I had heard all the, I, I knew the reputation and I had heard all the horror stories about uh, the profession, but they, they won me over. I think I spent 12 hours um, at the bank in a conference room meeting each one of them as I came in. And anyways, it ended up being, uh, when I think back on that, I miss the, some of the adrenaline in the building and, and some of the, um, the risk taking that was involved in trading, but they were incredible people. So I guess the short answer is great connection followed by an amazing team that I couldn't say no to. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, interesting. Um, how you, you just told me, so be, before I press record, you told me that you, you guys have been bootstrapping uh, for a while. Uh, tell me about that transition phase. You know, first of all, I mean, you, you met your two co-founders uh, with, with a background in medicine. Yes. And then, you know, uh, I mean, health uh, as, as a space, you know, is, is not, it's not, it's not just like, a, you know, qu quick entry, you know, uh, quickly earning money and stuff like that. It's, 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 it's hard, right, to, to, to get into. And, and, and build something up. How, how, that, how did this uh, transition phase basically from, you know, working in, working in a bank and then, you know, start, starting a company and, and, you know, kind of surviving, how, how did that look for you? Well, I, I now know after five, almost five years that uh, I'm a first time founder, of course, as you could tell from the story, but picking my first company to be in not only healthcare, but also to be B2B in healthcare was in hindsight, uh, a tall ask, you know, that's, that's putting yourself through a lot. Uh, so anyone listening out there who's considering making the jump, maybe consider D2C in today's <laughs> environment, if you want to shorten that. But the, the truth is, we were building. So those are important to understand, right? 18 month, two year sales cycles. I, I kind of knew that heading in, did, did the homework. What you can't appreciate and what I definitely did not appreciate until I was having those customer conversations and just visiting every hospital we could find across the country and talking to chief admin officers and chief medical officers about things like HCAP scores and how do you think about patient satisfaction and quality of care. Um, they weren't ready for VR and, and VR also wasn't ready for them in, in a lot of respects for a few years. So the transition was tough, but the decision to bootstrap to me wasn't as much of a decision because I knew the technology was nascent enough that, and I was early enough in, in as a young first time founder that scaling a business or getting something like venture capital or other dilutive forms of capital that would require me to have a lot more understandings or, uh, to qualify some of my unknowns, I just couldn't get to that point. So we had to, and one of the first people I found and brought to the team was Dr. Todd Maddox, who's our chief learning scientist. You know, I knew that we had to go the path of research and figuring out more of the value behind our product, because frankly, for the first two to three years, 
most of what we were doing was educating potential stakeholders, right? So not, not, not buying centers, not buying committees. We were just trying to find anyone who might be a champion someday inside of a system that the use case might overlap and say, here is what we know about VR in your clinical setting or in some workflow that might make sense to you so we can start evangelizing, give you the resources to raise awareness so that we might have a way to partner in 12 months when there is uh, more awareness. So the, the bootstrap decision was, hey, we need enough time to figure out what it is we need to build that will eventually be repeatable because all we had was an RCT and a single hospital and health system. And we knew that to build that single device cost tens and tens of thousands of dollars. So to do that, there was going to be some number one education that had to be done. And number two, we were going to be a services business for a while because VR wasn't in a place, at least 360 video, right? Uh, as, as opposed to game development, CG, Unity-based development within VR. Uh, that just, we were gonna have to be services before we jumped over to any kind of recurring subscription model or had repeatable content at scale. So for all those reasons, we had to bootstrap, we had to figure out ways to do that for quite a while. And then eventually when we had our first few partnerships and we realized, hey, this is our market. These are the, some of the use cases we can, we can make scalable. Now we can start thinking about alternative ways. Is this the right business? What stage are we? What do we understand? Um, should we take on these forms of capital? Who are the partners with the capital that might help us to scale our business or build this in a way that makes it more advantageous? And I, I'm sure we'll get into timing and everything, but bootstrapping had to, had to take time. And it, we knew it was going to be painful. Didn't know it was going to be as long as it was, but it was, it was mostly necessity. Right. So, uh, Interesting. Then, you know, how does Econa look look today? You know, what 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 have you understood? What is what is the you know, what does the product look like? What is what does the company look like? How do you make money now versus um, what have you found out and basically you know chosen for the future kind of to go? You know, where do you want to go? Where do you see this, you know, evolving? Sure, I'll kind of take that in pieces. The first is today, Icona is. We're a learning technology company powering education and kidney care. That is our that is our one-liner. What that means is we're a number of different products, learning tools, some VR, some online, and then developing quite a few that are mixed reality and kind of cross bridge the gap there between all of those media and formats. The reason is COVID. You know, we we spent years, the first three years, building this fantastic virtual reality platform for use cases that involved patient education decision-making. And those still exist. They are still growing, but COVID presented a barrier where the facilitators we had in the clinical workflows who were suddenly busy, not, not involved in the same ways in these workflows, uh, sharing of headsets that we had prior to COVID. We just weren't going to be okay with in the same way afterwards at the scale we were thinking about deploying. So for all those reasons, we had to think about broader non-VR deployments. And so we started building online-based learning, which included some of the same exact approaches we had developed for VR. So 
they, they transcend format. So something like identifying a learning task and then matching that with the brain region that you need the tool to target. That's a, that's when we talk about learning science, Dr. Maddox's background, Todd's background, that's his specialty. That's what he spent 30 years studying at his lab and running his department down as a professor. Uh, so that's, that's his world. The fact that we can now do this online and do this for patients anywhere means we didn't just have to think about VR for, let's say, patients who have kidney failure or patients on dialysis. Suddenly, if we're online and easily accessible on demand, we can expand the things we talk about, our content. We can expand the types of delivery we focus on. So moving further upstream, as they say, working with nephrology practices, working with primary care, patients who have kidney disease prior to kidney failure, patients who aren't aware they have kidney disease, but are managing diabetes, which is the leading cause of, of kidney disease, kidney failure. So today, Icona is developing products, and we have products in the market that are solving some of these greatest challenges within kidney care workflows. But now thinking about the vision, what we're building is, is able to be adapted and applicable beyond kidney care, of course. So we want to build the learning awareness platform for healthcare, meaning we believe that everything involved in education focuses on content. You know, this, this is a better video, this is a better animation, this is visual versus reading text. We, we aren't focused on content. There's plenty of great content out there. We will create novel virtual reality applications where emotion matters, where experiences matter for helping someone get over fears and make decisions quickly and confidently and train them more efficiently. Absolutely, that's a great use case for VR. We want to focus instead on delivery. So when and how and where is someone consuming information and what is that learning outcome? How confident are they as a result? Uh, how much less anxious are they? Uh, how is this improving their knowledge and what is their retention over a period of time that matters for let's say their ability to manage their health? So if they remember, uh, if they learn up to 100% and comprehend 100% of that two minute video immediately afterwards, how are they at one week, one month, three months later? Because if you can reduce their forgetting curve, which has been established for 150 years, then you can reduce their ability to forget information and transfer that short-term information into long-term memory. And that's what we care about. We, we want to power that across healthcare, but we're starting with very specific, very difficult learning challenges within kidney care. Okay, so let's uh, you know, looking a little bit more deeper into 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 the the different aspects of the business model. Who who's who's a primary customer, and how does the monetization model then basically look? Yes, yeah, so we'll just talk based on products here because that's how we we think about it here. So let's let's take a VR kit for example. Yeah, if a VR kit which includes the headset and all the, the accessories for VR has content on it for this use case is sold as a unit. Okay. So, so units are sold into uh, a dialysis organization. So an organization that owns 
hundreds or thousands of clinics across the country. Let's say they need a headset in a clinic. Let's say they want to give them to staff, to nurses who are traveling, who are mobile, um, give them to patients in the home setting. Those are just one-off sales with subscriptions kind of included on top of that. That's just on the VR model. That's into businesses. That's very much B2B. What we're also discovering as we have this online platform I talked about earlier is there's a new opportunity for us to get directly to patients where there's a freemium model. So the information patients are just being handed in the practice setting during their 20 minute visit. Perhaps there's a way for us to offer that to them for free, but then give them tools around that information they haven't had access to before, like answering specific questions that might come up between those three, six or 12 month visits, giving them access to resources that they need that they're not getting currently, uh, again, to support the learning experience. So there's a direct to consumer ability for us online, as well as for their practitioners to have some sort of uh, you know, tiered subscription model for access to information to manage and to help them scale their reach for all their patients, because often staffing is the issue. And instead of hiring a new person who's paying a full salary, they can instead offload that education for us. We can deliver outcomes that they're not getting anyways and do it for much cheaper than the cost of a new hire. Right. So, and for, because you told me that you're, you're thinking about, you know, kind of accelerating your growth phase. So basically, and it's, you know, thinking of like, what are the different uh, capital options here? Um, how do you, how do you, or how big of a market are we talking t- talking about? Like if, if, you know, looking at the US primarily now, um, how, how big do you see this thing? I mean, there's obviously, you know, this uh, hockey stick graph that you need to, uh, you know, <laughs> showcase within, within your pitch deck, but you know, how, how do you frame that for you specifically, like for Icona, you know, like in the, in the next, let's say a couple of years, like, How do you how do you basically see because it's 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 B2B, right? It's 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 in it's 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 specific customers, you know, specific customer profiles. Um like what are kind of the measures that we're talking about here? Yeah, on the B2B side, this is where timing is is everything, and timing, as you know, is a critical part of, of the why now yeah. part, part of your question. So a couple of interesting things are happening in in kidney care specifically. And it's, it's certainly one of the reasons why we are so excited about serving this market right now. In 2019, there was a, an executive order passed, Advancing American Kidney Health, AKH. And part of what that executive order said is there's going to be a drastic increase, a shift in the number of patients who are receiving dialysis at home. So currently, when this was passed, somewhere between, let's say, 12% of all patients on dialysis in the United States were receiving dialysis at home, you know, 10 to 12%. The goal was that patients at home would be closer to 80% by 2025. So for companies, for businesses that had built massive businesses by building brick and mortar dialysis centers, they are having to think about how do we best help patients understand and transition to home dialysis. 
So that's that's part of this is how do we facilitate that decision making? And so if we think about the number of total dialysis centers in the US, which is around 7,500, the number of patients who are currently on dialysis, which 550,000, 600,000, there's estimates in that range. But the real, the real big number here is patients with kidney disease. And so th this is where the timing is, is really gonna play a, a major role for us, especially on the B2B side. There are an estimated 37 million patients who have kidney disease today, so about one in seven Americans. In the but US. In the US. Oh, 37 million. 37 million. That's a but, lot. But only 10% know they have it. It's, a, it's called the silent killer for a reason. There, there are very few symptoms in the, in the early days. Now, leading causes of kidney disease and kidney failure are diabetes and hypertension. So often, and what we're seeing is we need to have better ways of helping those who do have kidney disease manage it, right? So if, if someone has diabetes and it's uncontrolled or hypertension uncontrolled, we know there's plenty of evidence that shows what can happen and all, all the negative health consequences that, that result. But kidney disease is often just not looked at. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for this, but most people are excited about the idea of helping primary care where often diabetes and the, the leading causes are managed, helping to augment their role and their ability to detect it sooner. So plenty of diagnostics companies coming online but the second key thing happening that's really part of this timing thing is if you take a look at the amount of money, capital pouring in to population health management and kidney care from all the top players, from all the new entrants, uh, from top, top VCs, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars per company, half a billion dollars last year alone into population health management, that's going to allow in these companies, I don't want to speak for them, but they, they have algorithms that allow them to understand who is at risk and the best ways to manage their care. So they, they sell, they work with payers, then work with providers on the other side. They help providers manage their patients and they have a series of recommendations that help them do that. So our bet at Icona is, we told you there's 37 million patients who have it and only 10% is aware of it, we think that 10% is going to increase drastically because companies are gonna get much better at detecting who has kidney disease and they'll be better making better recommendations for here's what they need to do. So here's the multidisciplinary care coordination team that needs to be involved to help this patient slow the progression of their kidney disease so that they are not ending up as a high cost crash event. You know, if, if more than half of people who are ending up crashing on dialysis don't know they have kidney disease before their kidneys fail and they end up in the emergency room, that's a serious problem. That's a very costly event. So if we are there as more and more patients are determined to have kidney disease, they don't know where to turn, they're going to need support. And these massive companies who are suddenly figuring out how best to support the care management with multidisciplinary care teams we believe we're going to be very well positioned for not only that management piece from a learning platform standpoint, but also from a 
understanding your treatment options when it comes time to decide on transplantation, what types of dialysis are best for me, how do I prepare for that transition? Okay, once I go home, how do I stay home confidently and not end up back in center, which is happening far too frequently because we're understaffed. Patients are not properly trained. They don't feel confident enough in their own abilities when something goes wrong at home. So these are all education and training issues that, uh, that span the care lifespan of a patient with kidney disease and the care continuum, because right now they're all siloed uh, within kidney care. Thing. Well, 37 million, that's a lot. Like what, what, what's the portion, what's the portion of like lifestyle related, um, lifestyle related choices basically for, for that? Is there, is there like a number? Do you know that by any chance? So because you said like diabetes and like, um, what was it? Um, hypertension. Hypertension, yeah. Hyper but uh, like, but okay, diabetes, yes. Uh, but like from, from these 37 million, like what's, the, what's like the portion of like, you know, this being a cause uh, because of like lifestyle related? I Exact lifestyle number I'm, I'm not familiar with, I will say. But I, yeah. I do know that the number... The numbers shared often, the awareness campaigns are one in three Americans is at risk of developing kidney disease for all of those reasons. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are populations that are disproportionately affected by kidney disease yeah. and, and kidney failure. There's no doubt about that. Uh, so all of, these are, all of these are at play. And for that reason, you know, kidney disease is, is highly complex. So- yep. It's, it's very difficult, right? If you're talking about lifestyle, it's hard enough to help educate someone or have a conversation and help them understand the role of their day-to-day -day behaviors in the long term. It, we, we know that's a very tough, difficult behavioral science problem and tough ask. But when you introduce a disease that is inherently silent, has no symptoms, so they can say, but I feel fine, and their, their kidneys are near failure, um, not to mention it's a very complex system. So how do you describe that well? And how do you expect to have that conversation so early on when they may have years left before their kidneys fail? No, very few people are gonna say, well, I feel fine. You're telling me I have potentially years before it's a real issue. I'm gonna stay the course, we can deal with it then. Mm. For all those reasons, it's just a tough, it can be a tough sell if you're yeah. a clinician having that discussion and you don't feel adequately prepared for that discussion either. Uh, uh, interesting. What, what are, uh, like, what does research say? Like, what are like the, like, that's interesting, right? Because you, you said like silent death, like what are the main variables for, or what, what does data show in the sense of like patient profiles? You know, um, you said like diabetes and hypertension, yes, but like how does age look like age distribution and stuff like that? Like, um, is it like what, I mean, is there like some sort of, you know, clusters of profiles or a specific, you know, things that, that, that data shows when it comes to these 37 million? I will say age, your kidney function decreases with age. So mm -hmm. As you get older, typically you'll notice your GFR, your glomerular filtration rate uh, is 
one of the indicators that physicians will use when they look at your lab work, and this is on, you know, anyone listening who happens to have their lab results handy, you'll notice GFR is on there. That's a measure of uh, kidney function. It's used as a proxy for, for kidney function. There's an equation that, that is behind it. Um, but breakdowns and certainly age, ethnicity, th these are highly uh, correlated with, with kidney disease. So I Ethnicity. Ethnicity. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. What exactly? Yeah. So I have up here, one of, obviously one of my, the best resources uh, out there, Kidney Foundation, shout out to the Kidney Foundation. They're, they're wonderful. Um, but here they, they lay out and it's right on their main page. So you can find it, but black or African-Americans are almost four times more likely and Hispanics mm -hmm. and Latinos are 1.3 times more likely to have kidney failure. Interesting. Okay. Then white Americans. That's very interesting. Okay. Wait, you know, you know, uh, okay. So, and what, what, like, what is known about, um, like, you know, in terms of like behavioral, behavioral aspects to kind of, you know, support or improve, well, not improve, but like at least support, you know, um, in, in, in support kidney function. Like, for example, um, one of the the big discussions that that I had with uh, with like people in the variable space is in general, you know, that we have all these devices and stuff, and we can track things, you know, but that does not change behavior, right? Because on scale, um, in society, people are not interested, especially when they're young, right? Uh, they're not interested in 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 tracking specific um, data points, you know, of of the physical or biological processes, you know, in their bodies. But and that's why people pay later, you know, with with health. That that's the entire thing about lifestyle related, um, uh, let's say, uh, things. But what is known about like supporting or kind of like you know taking the right choices when it comes to kidney health? Is there something like that? Yeah, it's incredibly important. I, anytime you take a look at the recommendations for what you can do today to help slow the progression of kidney disease, yeah, we, we talk about this often and we share a ton of these resources. It gets back to the same recommendations you'll see elsewhere, right? So weight, obesity is a huge issue as well here. Yeah. Um, quality sleep, you know, exercise, diet, I think more than anything else, and I'm sure that I would, I will make sure I share with you uh, nutrition resources, but nutrition dietitians, they play one of the most important roles, period. I mean, talk about a disease where effective meal planning and, and understanding, it, it's so specific. And the, again, this is another challenge on top of the fact that it's a complex disease but it changes. The recommendations are not only individual, but they change as you progress from stage one to stage five and then into kidney failure. So yes. things like phosphorus and potassium and sodium, these are all very important elements to be aware of, but the recommendation is not the same if you, no matter who you are for all 37 million people with kidney disease today. It's, it's going to vary on the, based on the individual. So again, back to your point of, these are all important things. They are across disease types and states, and there are plenty of wearables that help us determine that. But we have to have individualized understanding on, on the data side and on the care provision side to understand the recommendations. 
but also from the patient side. Like, how can you make sure that what is best for that patient with regard to their kidney disease is also in keeping and in line with what is best for them for their other health goals? And oh, by the way, what are their personal goals? Why are they uh, focused on improving their behaviors? What is their short, medium, and long-term motivation for wanting to stay healthy? How old are they? Are they still working? Do they have grandkids? Do they travel a lot? Do they like to work? Do they? These, these are all critically important when you're thinking about things like treatment options, so yeah, yeah. transplant versus dialysis and types of dialysis. So especially in kidney care, these things really do matter. And to your point, you, you really can't just think about it as a single solution, which is where a lot of people get, uh, get tripped up. It, it's just a very complex coordination beyond the patient. Right. Um, yeah, it, this is incredible because, it, you know, the, the complexity of the human body just makes things, you know, um, very difficult, you know, <laughs> it's, it's so, so interesting because you cannot just like look from one angle, you know, because there's so many things to take into account and that's what makes health so difficult, right, but also fascinating. Um, so speaking of fascinating, uh, what's also fascinating is, uh, uh, you know, financial markets <laughs> and then, you know, um, kind of the status quo in, in financial markets and in, in, in the sea landscape, etc. And um, so I, you, you told me that you guys are looking at, at, you know, at kind of entering a growth phase for, with Acona. Uh, how far are you in the sense of, you know, of that, of that process? You know, because what I want to talk about is, you know, you as a CEO and, you know, together with your co-founders, how do you think about that? Who do you talk to? What is kind of, you know, also kind of numbers, if you can share, like, what is, what are some goals, et cetera, in terms of, you know, raising valuations? I don't know. Like, how do you, how do you tackle that process? Yeah, I think it's important to think about the phase we are in currently, which I know I've, I've mentioned to you before, but we just recently joined the first cohort of ODX. So the on-deck accelerator, uh, and that is the first class is I think 100, around 100 companies. And the reason I mention it is this is our first clear decision point. And, and this is uh, very much aligns with kind of where I realized we were headed at the end of Q4. And that is we've realized that for Icona to have the impact we want it to have for us to reach the number of people we think it can reach and it should reach, which is beyond the doctor's office, right? Thankfully, I'm, and this is a trend across startups, I'm seeing everyone notice, we need to stop burdening physicians with being more efficient with their 20 minutes of time with the patients. You know, the number of tabs they have to open and all of us focus on integration. For us to realize, hey, we can help with all the moments between those three months and those visits, I think we need to have a bigger team. I think we need to have more skills and capacities on our team that we don't have today. Things like how do we reach patients? So product marketing, uh, product management with, with direct to consumer health tech expertise. You know, these are roles that obviously are, have been forged in the last, call it three, four, five years from companies that have recently say gone public or been acquired in the markets that have done the SPAC route. I mean, there has been an incredible 
generation of talent that has come out of those operators who are first 100 employees at these companies who are in adjacent spaces to ours who are now able to share and, and are looking for to join their next startup that's taking that path. So all that said, I realized it's time for us to grow our team. It's time for us to grow our products and to start delivering on our capabilities sooner. So to your, your question on what are some of those milestones, I think we're probably going to raise, we're going to look for outside capital Q2 of this year. Things are lining up for us to hit a lot of our milestones, which include the number of partners we have now onboarded, uh, how close we are, or our, our stage of commercialization. So for a little bit of context, we are SBIR funded. We have received two SBIR grants, one from the National Science Foundation, one from the US Air Force's AFWorks AF Ventures program. Those programs, and particularly the NSF, are entirely focused on lab to market, on commercialization. They want to take big swings on very risky tech, and they, they validate, they help us, give us a way to partner with commercial entities, with research partners, to take what we have built internally and truly test it. And that's what we've done through our phase one, which we've finished. And now we're looking at a phase two with partners, which moves towards further commercialization. But all that is to say, we are finally at a point where products in the market are able to be scaled, where our reach internally is able to be brought to a national scale and to serve large and medium-sized customers. And we have this, as I mentioned earlier, a freemium side of the business where yeah. we are just organically growing the number of individuals, be it family members, patients themselves, care partners, uh, schools who are teaching healthcare professionals, all kinds of people in this field already who want to join and get this out to their networks. We need to figure out the best way to, to grow all of those smartly to figure out which ones are working and then to be able to hit some of our logo milestones and then of course uh, hit some of our business metrics, which include the kits I mentioned earlier, the tiered subscription offerings, and then marching towards what those, uh, those pipeline partnerships look like. So whether we look at payers down the road or value-based contracting, which is a, an entire world by itself, where do we fit into that? We need to grow quickly now so that we can get to validating learning clinical measures in the patient's record. So um, that, that's the, the long and the well, long answer to your question of why now, and we will be looking for the right partners to, to back us as we scale and, and hit those milestones heading into the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to squeeze out some numbers from you, but, you know, just because you, you mentioned FWORK, shout out to uh, Jen Snow, JJ, uh, you know, yes. she, <laughs> I, I'm not sure whether you were aware, but like, I, I, she was actually on the podcast um, last year uh she, i need to go like, back and listen yes yeah she's amazing like um we we we, we like we talked um pre pre-recording like we, we i think we we talked like pre and after a recording like we had like uh separate separate calls she's amazing she's like very genuine person and 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 which is very interesting because i mean like you know i'm, I'm sitting on the other side of the pond you know 
um mm -hmm. we have never seen each other but like it, it was very amazing to talk with her but you know just quickly mentioning that here she's she's good you should check out the podcast by the way um, i'm glad you mentioned i will pull it up after this yes uh okay so do you i mean you're saying q2 uh, funding <sighs> i mean you know money is in the market the market i mean venture capital is 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 all over the place there's so many new funds there's so so much money available um you know due to the fact obviously that it's being printed like crazy but uh, um that's a different story but do you like for you is it is it more or less kind of a is it going to be a lot of work to raise or is it is it like already that you have like people you know lined up and saying like you know i actually want to I want to I want to partner with you guys. Uh, you know, this is this is obviously not not some some sort of a quick commerce quick commerce or um, you know money money printing PE type of uh, business that we're talking about. You know, this is really this is uh, this is let's let's put it this way. It's 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 important. It's an important topic, right? It's it's uh, it's, it's important for society. Like um, it's it's a different type of funds that you that you basically have backing you, but. Like, how does that look for you? Like, is it, do you already, like, I mean, obviously you are, you are probably already in conversations, but like, how, how does that look for you? I think one of the benefits to having taken so long to get to this stage is I've had these conversations for years with possible partners. So I have met with VCs for the last three years, if for no other reason than just to understand what it is they look for so that if there ever was a fit, then possibly we could work together. So yes, I have, there are people who I've built relationships with who understand Icona, who have seen how we've responded to COVID, to situations in the business, to opportunities. Those are the types of people who, uh, of course, I'm excited about having on board. Um, then on top of that, I think where I'm, I'm most excited is the emergence of strategic capital. So timing in with respect to fundraising and having platforms that allow smart money, small angels, operators who have small check sizes, who can now finally get involved at this stage of company raises. That is what's most beneficial and exciting for me. So if I have uh, 10 or 20 small angels who suddenly are on the cap table and they've built businesses similar to ours. And I can pick up the phone and say, I don't know how to deal with the situation. Who can I talk to? What should I do here? How should I be thinking about this? And they can pressure test my assumptions. They can ask the right questions, get me thinking down the right path. That's what we need at this stage, right? We're, we are a seed stage company and you know, and I'm sure most listeners know, that means we're pre-product market fit. We are figuring out where is the best path to grow this business from a certain milestone through series A and then towards series B. That doesn't happen by pouring money onto a problem or onto our discovery process. Our discovery process is what has to, to get into the right place. And that includes taking as much luck out of the equation as possible. How are you measuring your iterations? How are you thinking about experiments without going too crazy, obviously with experimentation, but partners are 
line, lined up in the sense that I know who I'm talking to. I've been keeping them updated. Those who I'm most excited about are aware of our funding plans and timing, but I'm also starting to have a lot of those conversations with new voices, with new funds that have popped up who are clearly thinking about kidney care or thinking about the combination of ed tech and health tech from a consumer lens in a way that really excites me. Because some of the investors that I would love, you know, my top three are not traditional healthcare investors. They're in the ed tech world. But, oh, wow. uh, but I've learned more from them, from following them, from reading what they're writing, from listening to them, from looking at their Twitter threads. Uh, they are, they're incredible, right? Some of our internal processes are now chiseled in stone thanks to the frameworks they've shared. And that kind of value, you just you can't find many places. So I'm excited about the more we borrow from EdTech, the more we learn the ways that we can build our business and reach more people in our domain. I think we're going to find a lot of expertise in the form of smaller strategic checks uh, in the venture market or from angels or solo GPs. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's also that's a that's a topic that I've been talking about, um, you know, with, with a lot of people, not on the podcast, but just like, you know, one on one conversation conversations is like this notion of smart money, um, you know, which is if you think about it, it's it may, it's so it's so smart, right? It's smart money is so smart. <laughs> no, <laughs> it I mean, it's, no it's, it's just like the this, you know, having having like a, you know, small cap table, having a, you know, just like a, this, this, this pool of people that, that first of all, really care about what you're doing. And also, you know, are just really incredibly resourceful in not, 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 you know, primarily in the monetary perspective, but let's say from a strategic perspective. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think at this stage, especially it's, it's, it, that's, that's, you know, the important part, right. It's like, as you said, right? Not uh, what should I do with a with a huge amount of money, right? Like where where am I going to put it? You know, it's not about burning that. I think a lot of people are doing that, but um, it's like okay, we actually want to grow this. We we want to we want to we want to actually mature, you know. Um, and for that, there's um, there's a different approach to this. But hey, um, this is interesting. So um, again. If you're saying like, yeah, you know, I, I know that we, we need specific, we you know we need more, more in the front of, you know, human capital, uh, specific skills that we don't have yet um, in order to, let's say, you know, get into, into this next phase, next stage. How, how did you then, or how do you define then that, that, that valuation, you know, for, for the company and like also the amount of money that you want to raise, like how, like, you know, it's one thing is about, okay, you know, I have strategic investors. I have like a bunch of names that, that I would love to have on board, but like on that sum, like, how do you, how did you derive that for you? Yeah, it comes back to the milestones that I want to hit in the next two years. So if, if my, if in terms of round construction, if I'm thinking about, I want 24 months of capital, the market's doing what it's doing. I would rather just have 24 months. If I plan for 18 or 12, I'll be back on the fundraising trail in six months. And I don't want that. When we're fundraising, we're not building and we, we just need to be building. So if, I'm, if that's my assumption is 24 months and these are the milestones I wanna hit. So this, this many sales and this MRR and 
uh, it's all around kind of deployment and sales, right? As you can imagine, it's less so team size. But with those constraints, I now think about where are the gaps in our team? I mentioned a really solid product manager who has healthy experience, uh, product marketing, and then understanding kind of our path. So probably a few consultants here and there. I truly think before Series A, you don't need, a, your team shouldn't be, and ours will not be much more than 10, if more than 10. We will stay nimble. We will hire for quality. And you have to in today's market. There's so much, to your point, there's so much money flying around. If, if the choice for my potential hire is between Icona and a company raising a $50 million pre-seed, right? Who can pay obviously more than we can for that, that hire. We have to have a level of attraction of gravitas for that hire that, that exceeds the capital coming from that other startup. I understand that, but that has to factor into how much we're going to raise for 24 months. So my constraints are first, how long? Great. 24. Where are the gaps? How many people am I trying to hire? What is the right team size? How many consultants do we need? With keeping in mind, trying to keep it lean and nimble because we are pre-PMF. And then from there, you can start to think about these are the reasonable ranges I think we can expect, but the market will, of course, dictate. And as we find a lead for this next round, the lead will say, here's what we're thinking. What do you think? And I expect to have that conversation with, with that partner. So for me, it is much more around, I want to have money in the bank. I want to have powder. I don't need to spend it. I don't want to quadruple our burn if we don't have to. Um, I want to be able to pick our spots and spend money wisely. We've already shown we're very capital efficient for four and a half, five years. So we're going to, we're going to continue to do that because we've come a long way by doing that. So entirely, this money will be used for having the right people to find the growth opportunity. And then the Series A is for getting from where we've identified to Series B, which of course is about a 10x of that annual recurring revenue. Yeah, I, I think I think you're in a spot in terms of you know what you're working on that hiring people, you're in a sweet spot where the work or the problem or the domain is attracting. You know, it's not just about like money or um uh, you know, I don't know, fast-paced consumer, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's really like it's a uh, it's there's like an emotional connection that that plays into it. So that's 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 very that's very good. That's that's the upside of it, definitely. John, I I can't tell you how many discovery calls end in asking if we're hiring. Yeah, it's. And, and the truth is you're, you couldn't be more correct in that. It, it, the mission, and this is, of course, this is what drives all of us now. And you know, it's in my bones and in my memories and in my neurons here, but it, it feels fundamentally very different than anything I've encountered before. And I know, so culture, of course, is thrown around a lot and I understand that that's, that's an important thing as you enter hyperscale growth. And it's, it's a very different skill set to be a CEO from zero to one 
or from zero to 20 employees than it is from 20 to 500, right? You, you need to level up uh, very infrequently. That is a skill set that a CEO has, right? Leading early stage in, in IPO company. But it feels great to know that there's so much inbound for us, and there has been for a couple of years, of people from freshman year of high school asking for internships because a relative or they were personally affected all the way through people with 30 years in the business who are saying, this is the innovation we've always wanted, or this is the way we've always wanted to think as an organization I've been a part of, and you're doing it, and can we be a part of it? So this is the, this is the difficulty when you ask about what I want to raise for, what are my objectives? Keeping it so focused is, of course, my job, uh, keeping us on task, but also knowing the amount of talent and experience that we could eventually have access to, to help us grow this in the right way. That's also incredibly exciting. So uh, just to your point, yes, the mission alignment is, is, I think, always going to be one of our greatest attractive points, more so than how much money we've raised or what our valuation is. I think the way we're going about, the problems we're tackling and keeping mission first is just gonna be critical to our, our value and our, our optics for forever, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, right, that's the biggest upside. Uh, and, and, and I think you will never be short of talent uh, from, from whatever perspective from the let's say domain specific uh pool you know so let's say the the health side of things you know the, the kidney expert side of things to the engineering side of things you know there'll you'll always find people that that you know connect emotionally to 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 let's say your mission um hey but you know looking at uh, at at the time uh maybe as a last question you know mm, what is what is something Something that you've, you know, maybe, you know, uh, outside of Vicona, what is something that you are observing, which you find interesting, you know, because uh, I, I, I we, we quickly talked about uh, things, uh, things before, um, before recording. So things such as, uh, as this launch house or on deck or, you know, these, these type of things. Um, and I, I just like, uh, I wanted to finish up this, this, this episode with just like, you know, uh, asking you of like, okay, what is, what is something outside of your, you know, daily, daily grind and, and the Kona hustle, you know, what is something that you are observing? Do you find interesting, you know, that is maybe not directly associated with, with your business and your company uh, that, that you would like to, uh, you know, point out? Yeah, I, I do think it has to do with some of the stuff we talked about. So web, web three for sure. But I think a trend that I'm, I'm noticing more and I, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a product of some of these programs like say on deck that have come up in the last few years or like startup health. And obviously I'm exposed because of Icona, but there's a lot more peer support happening in startup land and bootstrap land, especially because that's where we're coming from. There's a lot of peer-to-peer -peer outreach and communities, community obviously as a, as a term is being baked into not only a lot of companies that have been around for years, but also into the technologies and the, the, 
value propositions of DAOs and Web3 community, patient-owned, peer-owned, uh, individual user, creator-owned. I'm excited about that because I've noticed personally that my ability to do anything, not just Icona, but to understand where my morning routine or the way I think about uh, my lifestyle and having some stability and some autonomy, it's all being shaped by being more connected to people that are share similar views or are taking similar life paths or considering doing things that are a bit more risk on. Like I'm excited about that because I've noticed again, personally as a CEO and just in, enjoying my own life and navigating things as a post-military VA patient, uh, had a brief stint in finance, connecting all these dots and finding all these circles and being able to travel across the country or across the world and have networks of people who you can communicate with who you maybe have never met in person. Uh, that's a really cool thing. And I, I think that that is increasing with more and more of these online communities spurring up that have in real life components. And no matter what happens in five, 10 years, I expect that'll increase. And I also think that some of my personal decisions around where I live, how I live as a renter or a fractional owner of real estate, like these things really are going to shape, I, I know my next five, 10 years of thinking. And that's, a, that's just very exciting to me. So no matter what happens in my professional life, I know that some of these things will have real consequences and impacts, positive or otherwise, on how I think about navigating uh, you know, the world around me. So I'm, I'm following them closely. I know a lot of them are blown out of uh, the hype cycle currently, and they're everywhere you look. But uh, like any other new exciting fad, that'll, they'll die out but have a real firm hold on how we think about things and not even realize it. Hey, um, Tim, I mean, this was, this was, this was a good run. Uh, you know, just, I want to thank you for being on the show. Um, you know, it was great catching up. Uh, I wish you the best of luck with fundraising. Um, and, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's stay in touch. That sounds great, John. Thanks for having me on. Good, good catching up with you. Glad we finally pulled it off. <laughs>